Welcome to episode 9 of Fiction Forward. Where our fiction is intersectional. And our ideas are forward. So, welcome to episode 9. Here we are, doing things uh consecutively i think this is like the third time in a row that we haven't been late yeah recording a podcast go us um so this week if you couldn't already tell we have a special guest hello hello <laughs> our okay. guest this week is caleb rarig and he's a writer and television producer from michigan that's correct yes 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 i i Grew up in Michigan. I lived in Chicago for one year. I lived in LA for nine years. I lived in Finland for four years. I lived back in LA for a year, and now I'm back in Chicago of all places. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but, and I have worn a lot of hats, but yes, television producer and writer are probably the two most prominent. <laughs> so you definitely know a lot about the ins and outs of media. <laughs> I know a fair amount, um, uh, although as, as somebody taught me once upon a time, um, uh, the more you know, the more they can make you do. <laughs> <laughs> it behooves you to know as little about what you're doing as possible. <laughs> so I noticed uh, it looks like, according to Goodreads, I mean, Goodreads can always be wrong, but it looks like your first published book was published last year. Have you been writing a lot longer than that, like fiction? Oh, yeah. or um, yeah, is absolutely. That... I, yeah. I started writing... Seriously, I started writing in college. I, I took a short story writing class in high school, and that's what sort of really cultivated the bug. And I, I kept writing short stories in college. And, and then I had a friend who was giving me assignments. And one day she, she said, write me a, a short horror story. And so I wrote it, and it was like six pages or something. And I said to her when I was finished, I said, I don't think that the story is done yet. I think there's more to it. And she's like, well, keep writing it. So I did, and I kept writing, and I kept writing, and I kept writing. And it took me years, and at the end of it, I had a 160,000-word epic, like, YA horror. It, and, and it was a complete mess, because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but it, it really, it made, it was, I felt so, I, I felt like such a hero, because I, I had accomplished a thing. I had a novel. Even if it was a mess, I had a novel. And it was the first time I'd ever realized I could do something like that. So, so after that, I, I periodically kind of tried again and again and got better each time um but it was not until i think i i think i wrote um my debut i think i wrote it in 2014 because i pitched it to agents in december of that year i signed with my signed with my agent on january 2nd of 2015 we sold it in february and it was published in 2016 wow. <laughs> so so it was oh, sort yeah. of like it took forever and then it happened just like that just rapid fire so there's so much hurry up and wait in in the writing world <laughs> yeah yeah definitely um we're we're really going to be talking more about publishing in general but also about um your book that's coming out in april called white rabbit so should we get a short summary from the actual author of this book i oh, feel like that's a good yeah. way to go <laughs> yeah yeah okay so um <laughs> Basically, White Rabbit is the story about a boy named Rufus Holt who is having the worst night of his life. It starts on July 4th, six weeks after his boyfriend uh, dumped him and broke his heart in the worst possible way. 
And then out of nowhere, Sebastian, his ex-boyfriend, shows up saying that they need to talk. Now, before they can talk, he gets a phone call from his half-sister, April, begging for help. And then they find April lying on the floor of the kitchen of a uh, lake house, drenched in blood, um, clutching a butcher knife next to the dead body of her boyfriend, Fox. Now, April swears that she didn't kill him and that somebody must be setting her up, but Rufus knows her too well to believe that she's telling him the whole truth. However, she has something that he needs, and her price is his help. So now he has one night to prove that she didn't do it, even though maybe she did, and the only person he has to count on is the boy he wants to hate but can't stop loving. Yeah. <laughs> That was very snappy. Okay. I've delivered that summary a lot. <laughs> it is, it's very succinct and yeah. like includes everything to you. <laughs> um, yeah. So what was your motivation for writing White Rabbit? You know, something, what I always tell people is, I write the books that I wish that I'd had access to as a teenager. Because when I was a kid, I was such a suspense junkie. I loved uh, mysteries and thrillers and horror and uh, if it, if it had a body count, I was interested. But but when I was a teenager, the YA was nothing like what it is today. Um, the teenagers didn't even, they didn't even behave like actual teenagers. They sort of, it was very after school especially, and they behaved the way that adults wanted teenagers to mm -hmm. behave. They didn't drink or swear, and they didn't have the sex. And if there was a, a moral quandary, it was because the main character, you know, lied to their parents and it was this big crisis of conscience. And, you know, when I'm sitting there as a gay teenager who's in the closet and I'm thinking, gee, lying to your parents, what's that like? Um, so, so there was that. I wanted to, so I read a lot of adult fiction and finding gay characters in adult fiction, I mean, there were no gay characters in, in young adult fiction and finding gay characters in adult fiction, I was typically looking at either tragic victims or villains or else a sexless, sassy best friend who existed to demonstrate how open-minded the main character was. And I wanted to write a book where somebody like me, where a teenager like me could be the hero of the story. So that sort of was the guiding principle to both my debut novel and for White Rabbit, where I wanted to write a story about a, a, a kid who solves a mystery, but also deals with this other aspect of, of his life in a realistic way. This is why own voices are so important <laughs> to me, guys. Like, all of the best books coming out lately have been by authors who are like, I don't know, I just wanted to write a book with a main character I identify with. Like, I think that yes. there's a, I mean, a part of what it is is that a lot of these voices have been excluded for a long time. And so they're telling stories that haven't been told before because they're from a perspective that has never really been allowed out there. So, you know, I, I would say that a lot of the stories that I find most interesting are stories told by marginalized creators because the, they're points of view that are fresh. They're stuff that we still need so much more of them, but it's they're interesting and they're different and they're eye-opening and they're world-expanding. Yeah, and I feel like the concept and, like, the story of White Rabbit definitely subverts, like, the traditional, like, heterosexuality of thrillers. Like, you know, because, like, it's always, like, I'm the big macho jock guy, and, like, I'm the scared flower yeah. prom queen, and, like, yeah. and, and you know, it's just, like, yeah. very, like, rigid, like, gender roles, and there's, like, you know, a lot of, like, cis-headness, like, happening, and th that's just not yeah. found in White Rabbit, like, obviously. <laughs> the thing is, uh, it took me a really long time, actually, to get around to writing books 
with main characters that were like myself. Um, last scene leaving my debut was the, actually the first time that I, I tried to write a book with a gay main character. Because prior to that, I had seen so little of it out there. And I, and, and even far fewer sort of genre fiction, like, like mysteries and thrillers and suspense. There was none of it. Um, and definitely with genre fiction, you see so much more of falling, falling along these like hard gender lines and this sort of like that, that all like these tropes that people draw on. Part of the reason why I never wrote male main characters is because I couldn't really connect with the ones that were out there. If a book had a boy as the main character, it was this like alpha, macho, you know, very swaggery, tough. And I'm like, that's not me. And I couldn't convincingly write a character like that. It always came off like an act. So I wrote a lot of books that had female main characters because I felt much more in tune with the way that women were represented in fiction than I did with the way that men were represented. And finally, I, I just sort of decided I had this story in me and I needed to get it out. And I thought, even if this goes nowhere, even if no one is interested, I need to put this character onto the page just so that I can move past it and try whatever comes next. So <laughs> in fact, while I was pitching it to agents, I was already setting up for my next, you know, what I was going to try next when, when this one inevitably failed. And <laughs> imagine my surprise when it didn't. <laughs> But yeah, we're seeing such an expansion of um, marginalized voices and own voice works. And it's so great. It's so rewarding. And I think now more than ever, young people need that. Yeah. And it, it, it's like really fulfilling as like a young person to be able to pick up a book and like read about someone doing something like extraordinary or like seemingly like impossible and then realizing it's like wait they're pretty much like me like i am also this character like maybe i can do that too you know yeah maybe yeah maybe in this situation not the best because like we don't want people going out and murdering other people but like you can sure (laughs) as heck solve a murder kids like (laughs) right well but that's the thing is that uh, there is a certain kind of subverting this the stereotype of of you know, for too long, I think that that marginalized people were have been used as sort of an object lesson for the, you know, cishet white main characters' uh, a, a, a emotional growth or psychological mm. growth. And when you're constantly being cast as the sidekick or as this sort of like character to be pitied or the victim or whatever, it it really does affect. I, I mean, you know, I. I it still sometimes surprises me when I hear from other marginalized creators talking about how long it took them to come around to writing themselves into into their own work. How their books all centered cishet white protagonists because they had internalized this idea that their story wouldn't mm. sell. That people weren't buying it and people weren't interested. And we're finally challenging that. And I think it's great. I think it's so great because I think it really does... It, it, stands to foster a lot of self-confidence in young people who have (laughs) taken an emotional and psychological beating over the last few years in particular but really over generations yeah definitely and i think in our last few episodes we've mentioned here and there that like the publishing world you know has had to start paying attention to this generation of people you know young and old who read ya who like want to see new things and they want to see more diverse characters written by more diverse authors and like doing different things and I and you know whether or not they 
want to change their own industry, yeah. they have yeah. to. Well, you know, it's shocking when you think that young adult kind of <laughs> had its big spring, you know, it kind of revitalized itself 20 years ago now. And people who grew up on Harry Potter, which is really what, what started the boom of modern YA, I mean, those people are all adults now. They're Those people are out there running for office and Am I an adult, though? <laughs> I would I would also question the same about myself. <laughs> I am going to tell you what. I, yeah. <laughs> having your shit together is a myth. And, <laughs> like, one person in a hundred has their shit together. And the rest of us just fake it. <laughs> Nobody feels like an adult until it's too late. So, going back to what we were talking about, how there wasn't that much... LGBT plus representation in young adult fiction, especially like romances for decades, you know, you you were drawn to that to like add more representation in, but what drew you to the thriller aspect? You know, like I said, I, I was always a suspense junkie. And when I was a kid, I was like stealing my mom's paperbacks and I was reading Mary Higgins Clark and Patricia Cornwell and, and Sue Grafton and, and all of these kind of like some of them had kind of a noir feeling some of them had kind of like a gritty feeling and a lot of them they just I don't know they were just these really great mystery stories and that is that's really what attracted that that was what I wanted to write I just decided that I I was for whatever reason these puzzles these mysteries this open-ended question is what really attracted me I don't know if I would know how to write a book that didn't have some sort of a, a thriller aspect to it um, because it's how I, I, after so much trial and error and so many years of reading, it is sort of my default understanding of how to mm-hmm. structure uh, the rising and falling action of a plot mm-hmm. is, yeah, either a mystery or there's some sort of an action. I, one of my failed manuscripts was about uh, someone on the run from, from a bunch of killers so it wasn't a mystery but it was still a thriller it was still an actiony story and what i'm writing right now is um i don't even know how to begin to describe it but it is also kind of an action adventure thriller but in a lot of ways i would say i wrote a thriller because i couldn't think of i couldn't think of anything else to write i <laughs> i in fact with my debut one of the big issues that I faced was I had wanted to write a book about a a gay teenager but I couldn't come up with a plot Mm -hmm. to put to that that hadn't been done already Mm -hmm. I and I thought (laughs) I thought I could write a mystery but with the gay character but no one's gonna want it because there's what like I I I think at the time that I was trying to come up with it I didn't actually know of any and and by the time it was published I at least two other queer thrillers were out there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But at the time, I didn't know of any. Uh, so it was a huge gamble, and I really didn't expect it to go anywhere. And now I'm just sort of like, well, I, I mean, like, thrillers are kind of my thing, so. Yeah. So when publishing, like, started getting a little more diversity, there were reasons that some of the main characters were the way they were. Like, the whole story revolved around someone's sexuality or the whole story revolved around someone's like the color of their skin or where they were from or whatever. But I love that like now there's just books out there that's just like about a main character who like happens to be LGBT, but they're like going about their life and like that's not what the story's about. Or like someone who like 
is a Muslim main character, but like that's not really what the story focuses on. That's just like the lens that she sees the world through, and it's like not a big deal. I just love it. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's so. And this is where we get into the value of genre fiction, I think, personally, because I, I feel like it, it does allow for, I don't know, it, it just, it's a different way of letting, um, letting people see themselves in their favorite types of books, where the book doesn't have to be an issues book anymore, which is also incredibly valuable because I think, you know, I, there will always, I, I believe there will always be a need for coming out stories for queer youth because it is a uniquely queer experience mm -hmm. to uh, you know lgbtq plus kids are are unique in that they are not born into their communities they have to find their community and there will always be a bit of soul searching and a bit of a, a revelation with that and so that is a story that will always need to be told but it's not the only story and there are ways to tell that story that you know still allow for allow for it to just be one more hurdle that that character faces in addition to you know doing uh finals and getting ready for homecoming and solving a murder and all these other things that ordinary teenagers do every day casually yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you know i because i think about it for me when i was coming to terms with it i was studying for midterms and i was going through friendship drama and i was going through you know i was like it's solving a murder and solving a murder <laughs> yeah as you do yeah <laughs> yeah i think that added like a nice depth like that aspect added a nice depth to like Sebastian and Rufus's relationship um and just kind of how they like relate to each other and the world too because they're they're coming from like very different sides um as to like their experience with like exploring like their own sexuality yeah and that's another thing that I think um I I'm excited to see more of as as the number of books for you know gay and and lbtq plus uh youth expand we'll see so much more of how people relate to their sexuality and how as you point out these two boys come at their like, approach their sexuality have a relationship with it that's completely different rufus has himself all figured out and accepting himself was not a challenge sebastian hasn't totally figured himself out and accepting it is a challenge for him because they come from totally different places and their sense of themselves is rooted in different aspects of this so and i wanted to sort of show different sides of this coin because i also feel like sometimes sometimes we run the risk of getting a little um a little preachy and a little bit too prescriptive with some of these depictions where people are like there's really only one way to do this and so I'm going to demonstrate for you the way that it's supposed to be done, that this is the ideal way and this is how people, you know, you <laughs> have this drama and then you come out and you accept it and you move on and it's all puppies and rainbows. And that's not always the way that it is. And one size, there's no such thing as one size fits all when it comes to this stuff. And I feel like we embrace ideas like that at our own peril because pretty soon we're back in, in the kind of YA that I was talking about earlier where it's adults writing teenagers the way that they think teenagers should behave as opposed to the way that teenagers actually behave. I mean, and then you're not writing, mm -hmm. you're not writing a real person. You're just writing a cardboard cutout and teenagers can see that and they can see through it. 
So uh, you mentioned how Sebastian is not as secure with his identity. Would you describe him as more questioning or do you think he's like more like bisexual as a character or is that just like not something that's like completely defined within this novel? Okay, so I never settle on a label for him because I don't think he's ready for a label. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure he's figured out what it is. So to that extent, I, I think it would be it would probably be most accurate to describe him as questioning since he has not yet settled on something. I believe that if I were to write future books following these characters, he would eventually settle on by as an identity. And I want to be mindful of how I use those terms just because I sort of feel like I, I just want to, I just want to make sure that I don't try to claim um, something that isn't accurately represented in the text. I want to get people thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to find this, I'm going to find myself in this book, and then they find something that's not quite themselves in the book. So, but to be to be accurate, to be most accurate, that's how I would describe it. Yeah. I, I really like to, yeah. at one point, like, Sebastian confronts his, like, on-again, off-again ex-girlfriend, and <laughs> I think it's, like, when she finds out about, like, him and Rufus, Um, But I really liked that Sebastian was, you know, clarified that, like, no, like, what we had was still real. Like, that was still valid. But, like, this is also valid, too. Yeah. I thought that was really important. Yeah. Well, I think that there's there persists um, stereotypes and misconceptions about what bisexuality is and how kind of like sexual fluidity in general operates. And I wanted to make it really clear that just because just because he had been dating a girl and is now dating a boy that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that he's gay it doesn't mean that he has become gay um (laughs) or that somehow you know it it, that one cancels out the other and that they can't coexist because they can and i i also wanted it to be very clear that these were two real relationships that he had and that the feelings that came up with them were legitimate um and and I did feel like I needed to have him say exactly that to Leah in the moment in order to make sure that there were no there were no misunderstandings on behalf of the reader. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think that's like you know that that binary of like, well, you either have to be like yeah, like straight or gay, and then like the erasure of like bisexuality is like. I feel like something that like the mainstream media isn't doing as much of now, but it's definitely been like a persistent narrative. What I feel that I have noticed is when it comes to the depiction of male sexuality, it is always either or. Mm -hmm. And this, it reflects social attitudes Mm -hmm. as well, where boys and men are not allowed to experiment or to explore or to have feelings it is either or. And you hear about these people who they'll have one same-sex experience and forever people think that they're just denying their true sexuality, that this is, they're in the closet and they won't just admit it. And gay people are just as guilty of this as straight people because we do the same thing. We we still expect that there is this either or. And, and yeah. yeah, and I, I you know, I can't speak yeah. to what it's like for women, but I, I absolutely see it done to men all the time. And so I really did want to put in my book, I wanted to put this character who who does not experience it as either or, but as both and maybe other stuff too. You know, who knows? He hasn't 
he hasn't figured out. Maybe he's, maybe he isn't bi. Maybe he's pan. Maybe he's who knows, you know. And this is all stuff that it, that sometimes it takes a lifetime to figure out, and that's okay too. Yeah. Uh, in talking about like things that are missing in like depictions of masculinity as well in like the mainstream media, I also really liked how like Sebastian was very open with his emotions too. Like, there's a point where he's like openly crying in front of Rufus. Um, and it, it feel it's like a very like, like tender and like, like sympathetic scene. Like it doesn't feel like, you know, oh, it's awkward that he's crying in front of another guy or anything. It's like, oh, like this is really heartfelt, which I also really appreciate it too. Yeah. Well, and that does totally dovetail with the other point where I, I think for me reading books where boys actually allowed themselves to cry, that felt revolutionary to me because that was also mm-hmm. something that never ever happened and that was another part of this wedge that i felt between myself and the way that boys were always depicted in books which is another part of the reason why it took me so long to write my character because i felt like i couldn't really relate to somebody who was not in touch with their emotions at all or who felt that having emotions was a weakness and oh my gosh okay i'm about to talk about wonder woman um because i (laughs) do it (laughs) yeah because i had this conversation after wonder woman i was talking to people and you know everybody talks about how they cry during the no man's land scene and i realized and it was funny because i was like i'm one of those people like hi howdy i'm one of those people and the funny thing was i was like a lot of the people that were talking about of course were women and who were talking about how how much it meant to them to see this to see a, a woman be this superhero who is unafraid and willing to charge in there and do what's right. And for me, what it was, was that I thought, for once, you're seeing a hero who's, um, whose strength is rooted in her emotions and, and where her, her love and her compassion for humankind and for suffering, she does this because she says, this is the right thing to do. We, we're going to save the day because it's right. Not, I'm not, when you see like male superheroes it's always their emotions are always their weakness and for Mm -hmm. wonder woman it was her strength it was what what fed her need to do the right thing as opposed to with with male superheroes they're you know if they fall in love that's one more thing that can be used against them and if they feel compassion it's a moment of weakness and then they always pay for it and i thought finally yeah and i thought finally we're seeing a character who who feels things and who cares and that this is this is a good thing like this is why she's doing her heroic deeds is because she cares so i feel like it means a lot to me to write boy characters who feel things and who care and where these aren't these aren't weaknesses sometimes they're strengths sometimes they're vulnerabilities but they're just human this is just a part of what humans are and how we react how we should react i feel like Gosh, if we need one thing in this world right now, it is it's works that create or teach empathy, that show that having empathy for people is a good thing, that it's that it can be a source of strength as opposed to just like this weak thing. And I'm really glad that um I think there are there are writers who are doing the work to dismantle this. And frankly, even John Green has has his boys cry in his books, mm-hmm. and I think that that's that's a really good thing. Those books that are being consumed by like literally everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we talked a lot about how the mainstream media narratives don't often include like identities off of the binary of like gay or straight, but like 
what else do you think the mainstream media narratives are missing about like LGBT relationships in general? You know, I think that's something something that's sorely needed is more intersectionality just in general. Um, you know, kind of like what I was saying earlier about how queer youth really, they, they're not born into their, but with rare exception, they're not born into their communities. But on, on that same note, they're everywhere. They're born into every walk of life, every nation, every religion, every ability or disability, every skin color, every every possible marginalization. There is always, there are layers there. And so there are as many stories as there are people. <laughs> And so I, I definitely want to see, I don't know, I definitely I want to see more intersectionality. I want to see more about how sexuality correlates with other factors, uh, environmental and upbringing and, you know, your economic background, your religious background, where you are. I want to see stories about gay immigrants. I want to see more stories about gay people of color. Well, queer people of color, just in general. And I'm reading a book right now about um, a very sexually active gay teenager. And I've read books about gay teenagers who are still sort of struggling to get there. Um, and I think I'm like, yeah, let's have more of this broad scope of stuff because there are still misconceptions about what it means to be gay. And in particular, I think for gay boys, oh my gosh, there's so many messages about how and when you're supposed to be ready to have the sex and if you're not ready then there's something wrong with you and if you are ready there's something wrong with you and i just like let's dismantle those stereotypes and let's i don't know like let's just show people having sort of a healthy relationship mm -hmm. with their own identity first you know <laughs> yeah this is kind of a two-part question but do you think the line between ya and adult is kind of blurring as ya is kind of getting getting darker, getting more intense, um, you know, and do you think that's a good thing? Do you think it's like creating more opportunities for, you know, wider identities to be to be represented? You know what, I'll say this, I think that sort of similar to a point that we were just talking about earlier about how <laughs> today's adults are people who grew up on on Harry Potter and then Twilight and then, you know, all these other books that really expanded the genre, Hunger Games and Looking for Alaska and some of these other things that really sort of started taking teenagers more seriously. And as a result, you now have adults that are committed young adult readers. I think that what has happened is that people have started to, to take literature meant for young readers more seriously. And adults have discovered it and have started to realize that a lot of the um, misconceptions that they had about young <laughs> there still are many but for a lot of people they're starting to realize that, that that what they thought of as books for young adults or literature for young adults and what they expected out of literature mm -hmm. for young adults was wrong um mm -hmm. because a mm -hmm. lot of people expected these very dumbed down simplistic after school special stories that i remember from my mm -hmm. youth Judy Bloom. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, well, uh, although, yeah. although, give Ms. Are, Bloom credit Are you for, there, God? For, it's me. Yeah. Quality it, like, excuse you. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, she was pushing, she was pushing the limits uh, with uh, forever. And, and, but, you know, all that being said, I think that 
the readership for YA is now no longer just teenagers. So mm -hmm. you've got teens and adults reading it. And because adults take it seriously, I do think that as a YA writer, something that is important to remember at all times is that our primary readers are teens. And those are the people that these books are really written for, which doesn't mean that adults can't read them or enjoy them. Please, I hope they do. But it also means that if you're writing a book about teenagers for adults, you're not really doing your audience the, the proper service. Yeah. So I think that as YA has grown and continues to grow, you definitely see more complex stories because I think people are starting to realize that teenagers are are deeper and more complex than they've been given credit for. That really the only difference between a teenager mm -hmm. and adult is life experience. So I do think that we're allowed to write darker stories for young people because we've stopped, or at least a lot of people have stopped believing that young people aren't capable of processing darker stories and heavier mm -hmm. themes. But what I always say to people is I'm like, you know, they they expect teenagers to read Hemingway and Faulkner and Shakespeare. And if they can handle that, they can handle my book, my, my book about, you know, teens and murder and, and whatever else. So yeah. I think that the difference between good YA and bad YA is whether or not you take teenagers seriously. And if you do, Definitely. you're going to produce a good story. Yeah. I love that sentence. No one's ever put it that exact way, but I love yeah. it. <laughs> and I feel like Thanks. that will probably in the end, like end up drawing more adults to it because they'll be looking for books that like they couldn't read when they were teenagers. Part of yeah. their past self, like also feels yep. like vindicated. You know, this book takes me seriously at least. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. What, what else do you hope readers learn or take away from your book? I hope that fans of thrillers, I guess even fans who, of, of not thrillers, I hope they walk away from the book feeling entertained. I hope that they also connect with some of the messages that I tried to communicate with this book in particular, where Rufus is very angry and very frustrated. And it, I wanted to write a book about someone who is an outcast and who is facing classism, which is a recurring element in my books I've discovered. Um, and, I, and I really wanted to write about what that's like for for a poor kid to be on the outside um and the kind of prejudice that poor people face just in general um and so that's a message that i hope that people walk away from this book with or at least i hope that it's it's something that they think about when they finish reading the book and i guess just in general i, I think any with any of these books i want to make all the characters real and palpable i want them to all have a rich inner life and they all have their own motivations and even if some of them do the wrong thing i want people to understand why they're doing it and I, I guess i hope that people walk away from it also with sort of an expanded sense of of i don't know i, I feel it's like a very lofty goal for for my like little teen murder mystery but like i want people to walk away with sort of an expanded <laughs> sense of what it just means to be human you know and 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 yeah I, yeah i think that for me one of the one of the big revelations about when i was a kid and i started reading books for adults was realizing how bad guys do wrong things thinking that they're the hero and mm -hmm. you know thinking that they're doing the right thing and they always have a reason You've got to present that honestly. You can't just have somebody say, ha, 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 I'm going to do evil because I'm evil. You know, they, <laughs> they have to have their own, their own reasons for it. And, and humanizing these characters does make it feel much more real. So I guess I, guess I want to give that gift to readers. The, what I had was just experiencing fully rounded characters 
in that way. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that's what books are for, to, like, read them and expand your worldview and have a bigger understanding of, like, what it's like to live life as this character. Yeah, exactly. I want people to lose themselves in the story and to sort of finish it being glad that they had that that experience. I will say I literally did not put it down when I started reading it. I'm like, all right, I guess I have to finish it like immediately. <laughs> does it, it takes, st- it's all like one day. I stayed up until 3 a.m. Yeah. Oh, no. reading it. Because <laughs> I was like, there's no way I can go to bed and like not know how this ends. <laughs> Especially because it's all, it's like such a compressed, I mean, the book is not compressed, but like the time period that it takes place in is like, ultimately it's like one day. So yeah. Yeah, it's like less than 24 yeah, it's, hours. It's about, I calculated, I did the math, of course. I think it's something like eight hours that the that the book takes place. Um, yeah. Which was, it was funny because when I first started writing it, that is not how I imagined it going. But when I was, I sat down, like I sketched out the story in thumbnail form and I just thought, oh, it'll be this murder mystery and it'll have this element and that element. And then as I was outlining it, I thought, oh my gosh, this is all going to take place over the course of one night, isn't it? And then I was like, well, that's a challenge. So (laughs) we'll see if that works. (laughs) And my gosh, my editor totally called me on my timeline. She's like, wouldn't the sun be coming up by now? And I'm like, "Uh, maybe. I mean, (laughs) but maybe it didn't. like there's no sun it's a exactly (laughs) oh she had the copy editor actually like like calculate what the times would be at various points in the book and i was like stop doing this nobody cares so so i i had to actually like go back and like the revisions process i had to go back and like start the book earlier and then like sort of justify like the different like where where we were at the time and then sort of like move the sunrise up a little closer (laughs) so i was like i was like oh this is so frustrating (laughs) (laughs) do you think that your experience as a television producer kind of like helped you with the storyboarding and editing process as a writer i think definitely i mean what i went to college for was um acting and i originally moved to la to be an actor and i did do some acting (laughs) i i was in a terrible horror movie and i was in some um a couple of commercials and some music videos and yeah um not you know i paid some bills well, I paid most of some bills <laughs> um, <laughs> with my acting money, but it never turned into a career. And while I was struggling, I got my day job working behind the scenes in reality television. And I worked in reality TV for seven years before my company shut down. And it was a real educational experience. And it really did help me think about story in a different way. And I would definitely say that I think very visually. So when I write, I am absolutely picturing the scene in my head. And so a lot of the times when I'm describing stuff, I'm describing exactly how I see it in my mind, how if I were filming this as a movie, these are the visuals that I would go for. This is how I would try to set up this shot, so to speak. So I think about it in in those terms, and I definitely think about story beats in the way that you would think about it editing for tv or for movies where you've got your commercial breaks you want to have your cliffhanger (laughs) but yeah i would definitely say that it has affected the way that i tell stories for your next book you mentioned that it's also a action adventure thriller thing like similar to this aren't there any more details about it yet oh my gosh all right so (laughs) this is hard this is hard (laughs) a million years ago i wrote a screenplay and it was terrible because i don't know how to write a screenplay and it was this 
story that had grown organically in my mind over years and years and years inspired by different sources and it was this action adventure tale and it was like a little bit Buffy the Vampire Slayer and a little bit Charlie's Angels and yeah and by the time I finished it I I wrote the whole thing and realized that what I'd done is I'd written my version of Hamlet but but if Hamlet were Paris Hilton and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern (laughs) and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern were a bunch of drag queens that kick people in the face like Lucy Liu and Charlie's Angels cool perfect so I love it so I wrote this whole thing as a script and then later realized how terrible it was and I mentioned it to my editor and she said well that's going to be your third book so I have been (laughs) adapting that into book form it is so hard for me I tell people I'm like it is Hamlet meets Priscilla Queen of the Desert meets Charlie's Angels meets the bling ring (laughs) and I don't know how else to describe it except like that and it is a loose action adventure retelling of Hamlet with drag queens so i'm sold (laughs) that's fantastic (laughs) yeah so i'm excited about it but it's so different than anything i've tried before so we'll we'll see how it goes yeah (laughs) yeah but before this uh this new book comes out i should probably mention that um white rabbit doesn't come out until later this year like april like mid-april right it comes out april 24th okay mid and april i was close in the meantime, if you have any comments about this episode or have any questions for us or, again, want to send us dog pictures, yeah. maybe. Pictures of dogs, please. Yes. Um, you can find us on Twitter under the handle at fiction underscore forward. The underscore is very important. Or you can email us at fictionforward at fictionistmag.com. Just and, and literally anything you want want to tell us, we would love to hear you. If you want to just tell like it to us, send us a random stream of letters and numbers. If you want to complain about us, that's fine. You can yell at us. We'll we'll be happy to hear it. Sounds good. I'll take it. It's yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, we'd love to hear from you guys. And in the meantime, definitely check out our new friend Caleb's book that's coming out. April 24th, and any subsequent books that may involve Hamlet and drag queens. Yes. (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on our show to talk with us today. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. This was a blast. I'm glad glad you had fun. I'm glad it ended up being good, and I'm glad that our timetables matched up so that you could come on and chat with us. Yes. No one got murdered yes. in yeah. real life, at least. Yet. Yet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So you can catch us on our next episode. It's episode 10. And that'll be our news roundup episode where we give you all the latest happenings in the YA universe, plus some other tidbits that may pop into our heads in, in between now and then. <laughs> Um, going beyond that, the next book we'll be focusing on is Children of Blood and Bone by Toby Adiebi, which I am very excited for, to say the least. Excited. So, but, but all books make me excited. So. <laughs> Everyone, every but, book is excited. Yes. <laughs> so, with that, we will see you on our next episode. Yay! Enjoy our outro music. I'm sure it's coming in. It's it's already it's in. here. It's here. <laughs>